0: So obviously, uh, in keeping with our Alive series, as I've already foreshadowed, we are focusing today on the resurrection events uh, uh, in the Bible, we have been for a time now, Uh, and this passage has been chosen because of the curious events uh, in verses 20 and 21. A dead man is hurriedly and fearfully tossed into a community grave. He's thrown in in such a way that he clatters into the bones of the dead prophet Elisha and instantly... He leaps to his feet alive We're given no other details or explanation. it comes from nowhere and it's instantly forgotten why why if all that that if that's all said and done in verses twenty and twenty one have we read all of verses ten to twenty five It's not just because I feel the need to pat out a full twenty five minutes it's because context is important context oh, I And and so we're going to look just quickly uh, at a a few layers of context that surround the events in verses 20 and 21. There's historical context, there's a literary context, remember this is written in a book, Uh, there's a deliberate structure to it. There's theological context, truths, eternal truths about God that this brings forward Uh, and we do all of this work so we can place the meaning of these events appropriately into today's context. How is it speaking to you and I in this very different land that we live in today. But let me cut to the chase before backtracking through the context. This is the big idea. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half-hearted and afraid, God is always there. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half-hearted and afraid, God is always there. And some more food for thought. You are the man, you're the dead man, the one who is no longer dead but alive again. You were far from God, you were irretrievably lost, you were a slave owned and ruled by your sin. You were in the dark, blinded by this world. You were dead, your head and heart had lost all life. But through the death of another, through the death of the righteous man of God, you have been touched and miraculously raised to life. You are the man who was dead, but even after it was too late, Jesus offered his life to the grave uh, and touched you uh, with his love and you have sprung back to life. Now that's pretty good news. But let's get back to the story and its context so we can come back again to talking about what it means for us today. So first, uh, let's have a little think about history. These events are about 2,800 years old. Everything else, uh, uh, that much you can learn from Google, everything else you can learn from the passage itself. Syria is the threat in this passage, Syria to the east. Uh, Moab a little further south, is a menace. Not the major threat, but they're pests. Joash, or Jehoash, he's sometimes called in there, uh, he is the king of Israel. And Israel is very weak. In fact, this lies just before the passage in verse 7, you learn that their army has been obliterated. There's very few soldiers left to this king, Joash. And we know as well from verse 21 that the people are afraid. So that's our context. And yet, God is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half-hearted and afraid, and they are afraid, that's very obvious in the passage, God is always there. Another obvious truth in the passage. There's a literary context as well. It's worth paying attention to the order in which uh, the events are written down by the author. Uh, In verse 10, we're introduced to Joash, the king of Israel, Uh, 16 years and just three verses later we learn that he's dead and buried. That happens by verse 13 and then verse 14 picks up again a couple of events from his life. It's already reported that Joash has died but from verses 14 to 25 the author backtracks to tell of a couple of specific events that occurred throughout his reign. It's a simple sandwich of three layers. The top slice... Elisha prophesies that Joash will push back Syria three times. In the filling, there's verses 20 and 21. A a dead man is raised to life. And the bottom slice, Joash is said to have pushed back Syria the three times that Elisha had prophesied in the first slice. Well, isn't it interesting that the events of Joash's life are written after his life has already been said to have ended? They're not written down as an afterthought. This is a deliberate literary structure. It's been written as a unit to tell us something distinct about God. And isn't it interesting that the event of the man being raised to life is told in between the account of Elisha's prophecy and its fulfillment? That tells me that the resurrection event doesn't stand on its own. It belongs to the literary unit. Uh, it complements the distinct lesson of the whole of this passage that extends from about 14 to 25. And the and within this literary unit, it even says its own meaning. It says it in verse 23. It's, uh, it says, "...the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant, and he would not destroy them, and nor has he cast them from his presence until now." You can see I'm not very imaginative. The big idea has been lifted exactly from these words. God is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half-hearted and afraid, God is always there. As a theological context. Theology, uh, it's the study of God, uh, his nature, his characteristics. Uh, but it's also importantly tied to the, study, to the study of God's relationship with humanity. To know God, we have to know ourselves. And to know ourselves, we must know God, the God who made us in his image. So what do we learn about humanity in this passage? Because this is importantly tied to the theology of the text. We learn in this passage something about humanity, there's a sort of a floppiness to humans, something a little bit pathetic, uh, insipid or weak. Uh, When Joash learns that Elisha, the man of God, is dying, uh, he is genuinely aggrieved. Joash is drawn to the man of God. And yet, the one-line summary of Joash's reign, found in verse 11, is that he was a man who did evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a man who is drawn to the prophet of God, but a man who also did evil in the sight of the Lord. The same man. Uh, When Elisha commands Joash, one step at a time, to fire an arrow out the window, he follows the instruction, scrupulously, one step at a time. And then when Elisha gives him a more open-ended command, strike the ground, well, you couldn't say he doesn't do it, he, he does it. But it's mechanical and tentative and half-hearted. What a weirdo. A guy who was struck with both passion for the Lord and a lukewarm indifference, all in the same person. How strange and unusual. Do you find that weird? Or do you look in the mirror and see something familiar? someone who can also rise to, uh, to peaks of passion and devotion and then even in the same day uh, be struck with laziness and complacency. What we discover is that even in the context of humanity's fear and half-heartedness, God continues to speak and act. In ways bold and unexpected, God waves his hands to the faithful Uh, so that they can be reminded that he hasn't gone anywhere. God is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half-hearted, and aren't we all guilty of being half-hearted, God is always there. And finally today, well, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, how when you do the work on a passage, the ancient context of the text suddenly doesn't feel so foreign. It just feels kind of normal, doesn't it? The king of Israel was a half-hearted man. Uh, He believed in God. He even depended somewhat on God for salvation. He was even a man who apparently prayed. And he repeatedly benefited from God's presence and blessing. But he's such a floppy dude. The luxuries of being the king did nothing to lift him above the basic flabbiness of everyday people. And it might as well be said, the flip side is true. The privileges of being king didn't necessarily make him any more susceptible to moral weakness either. It's not power that corrupted the guy, it's just humanity. He was just as easily pulled sideways by distractions and downwards by sin as anyone on the planet then and now. So for all our flip-flopping nature, backward and forward, up and down, what a blessed constant to know that God is always there. That when we are faithful, God, uh, when we are faithless, God remains faithful. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He has no beginning and knows no end. God is always there. So let's look at the stories. Let's actually uh, have a little think about the narrative as it unfolds. First, uh, the top slice of the sandwich, uh, the story of Elisha. Prophesying victory for Joash over Syria, and then the bottom slice as well are the predicted victories. So Elisha gets sick. He's going to die. And Joash, the half hearted king, he engages some of the good half of his heart and he runs to Elisha's side. See, Elisha is the man of God, and the king is acknowledging uh, God's presence is essential for the fortunes of Israel and that the loss of Elisha will be a great loss for Joash's kingdom and then we get this episode Elisha says to the king take a bow and arrows so he takes a bow and arrows then Elisha says to the king draw the bow and he draws the bow and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands and he says open the window eastward and he opens the window eastward and Elisha says shoot and he shoots And then Elisha says, the Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Syria. And all of that followed by this very strange event. He says again, take the arrows and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, does that strike you as odd? Maybe even a bit unfair. That just like before, Joash, he's obeyed the instructions to the extent that they were clear, for crying out loud, but he gets in trouble for striking just three times and not five or six. How on earth was he supposed to know? Let me get a little bit nerdy for a bit. And I'll show you something that I don't think is quite obvious in our English text, uh, but I was quite uh, interested to learn, and I hope you find this interesting as well as I as I studied this passage during the week. Uh, And the thing I want to point out—it comes down to this instruction from Elisha: strike the ground. Here's what I picture: a fistful of arrows held at one end, and I thrash them against the ground. Can I get an indication of whether other people are picturing the same sort of action? You get down low and you just whack them on the ground. Are people thinking the same thing? Are people thinking something different? I didn't get any indication. Who's thinking you're just whacking them like sticks on the ground? Yeah, who's thinking something different? All right, there's a couple of people thinking something different. My instinct is he's just whacking them on the ground. I mean, it's a bizarre act, isn't it? No wonder... Joash stops after three hits. You can picture him looking up with a puzzled look as if to say, Elisha, this feels weird. Am I I doing it right? Well, let me show you this. The English word strike makes us think of a whack or a hit. But the Hebrew word has a much more fluid meaning. it's It's a word that sort of flows depending on the tool that you're using to strike. So to strike with your hand... Is a punch or a slap to strike with a stick? You know, is a is a whack or a blow. Uh, when you strike with a sword, you don't whack with it; you slash or you thrust, don't you? When you strike with an arrow, you don't grab them and clatter them against something. You fire them. You shoot an arrow. That's how you strike with an arrow. Well, now, already that's a much more sensible image, isn't it? Elisha is telling Joash to fire the arrows because that's what you do with arrows. In fact, that's what he's already done with one arrow. Now, one thing that isn't fluid about the Hebrew word to strike, it's effectual. How do you effectually brandish an arrow? By swinging it or by shooting it? That's how you deliver a decisive blow with an arrow, by firing it. I also want to point out something else in the Hebrew about the word ground. When we read the word ground in English, uh, we picture the earth at our feet. Partly coloured by our first impression in, in this context of striking with a handful of sticks. But the word is also somewhat fluid according to the context. But by far, its most common translation is the land or the earth. Now let's remember that Joash has just shot one arrow out the window towards the land in the east where he's been told that he will attack and defeat Syria. And now he's been told to fire another fistful of arrows, and this time we'll say, towards the land, not at the ground. I'm persuaded that this is the same symbolic act as when he was told to fire out the window before. Now, I recognise this level of research is beyond the knowledge and resources of the average person. On a a daily read through the Bible for me, I would not have picked all of this up. My knowledge of Hebrew is not that good. I've got books and computer programs that help me out. But um, But let me show you a couple more details from the text that remove Joash's excuse. After Joash shoots the first arrow out the window, Elisha tells him what? Elisha tells him this arrow symbolises the Lord's arrow of victory over Syria. So Elisha, uh, so Joash, the king, he knows he's engaging in a, in a powerful, meaningful, symbolic act. And he knows that the arrow symbolises victory over his single greatest threat. And when he's told to take hold of more arrows and strike the ground, whether or not that means flail them like sticks or shoot them out the window... He should be picturing himself laying into a fearsome enemy with the Lord's might and strength. Stopping uncertainly when there's more in the tank, well, that seems like the definition of half-heartedness to me. Also, remember that with the first arrow, that Elisha placed his hands on Joash's hands. You can sort of see it uh, portrayed in this picture. Elisha's hands are on the king's hands. Now, we don't know this for sure, but maybe his hands are still there, guiding the king himself through this act of firing the arrows. And if that's the case, in order to stop at three, Joash has had to pull himself free from Elisha. Maybe. I don't know that for sure. But even without knowledge of the Hebrew, I do think it's possible to see that Joash's actions, they're emblematic of a half-hearted faith. They're just showing off his own half-heartedness. Even if it's just uh, interpreting fairly... Elisha's reaction. We can see that there's something half hearted in there. Even if the instruction was to slap the arrows like sticks against the ground, he had all the tools and context to see that what he was doing was significant and weighty, and he should have done what he was asked with some heart. But remember our big idea God is gracious and compassionate. Even when his people are half hearted, and aren't we all guilty of that? Even when his people are afraid. God is always there. And we find at the end of today's reading, I'm not going to go into much detail on this, the bottom layer of the bread on our sandwich, God holds true to his word, even through a half-hearted king. Joash knows some success as king. He regains ground from the Syrians and he does it three times over, just as God promised. God still works through the men, even with a skeleton army, because the Lord is faithful And God is always there. Well, finally, we come to the events of uh, our surprising and obscure resurrection event. The the passage tells us in verse 20 that spring has sprung. But instead of brimming with life and hope, uh, in this part of Israel's dark past, spring was a time of fear. Because it's not just flowers that come up out of the ground, but the Moabites would emerge from the south in raiding parties, picking off vulnerable travellers. The Moabites were a pest. This wasn't, you know, a, a, a royal sanctioned attack. They were just raiding. And there's a group of mourners who have come out of their city to place a dead man in a tomb and they see a bunch of these raiders in the distance. So they stand at the door of the tomb and they toss their friend inside so they can make a quick escape across the country back to the city. And their dead friend touches Elisha's dry bones, and instantly he's revived. We'll recognize this much at least. This was a miracle that nobody was asking for. were they? No one asked. No one prayed a prayer of faith for this one. It just came out of the blue. This was no act of faith, it was an act of fear, in fact. It's true. That ordinarily God works through faith. He responds to our prayers. He rewards faithfulness and boldness. But God is not bound by our limitations. God is not faith's servant. God is his own agent. Sometimes his answer to prayers is no. Many times God doesn't wait for a prayer to do his work. Because he's always there, he's always watching, he always knows the need of the hour and God is a God who acts. And that's what happens here, God just shows up, unasked for, unexpected. There's another important factor here, the friends of the dead man, they were acting from fear, not from faith. But the, bed, but the dead man himself was acting from nothing. He's completely passive. There's nothing going on, nothing. He's dead, he's limp, he's wrapped up. He's afraid of nothing, he's expecting nothing. That is exactly the description that the New Testament gives of people trapped in sin. They are dead, neither looking for help nor expecting help, not even particularly afraid a lot of the time. This is why I said at the start, you are the man. Not because you're the man, but you're that man. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The course of this world, of course, includes sin. It includes also things like half-heartedness and fear. But I say you are the man not because you are dead but because you were dead and now you are alive because of the act of another dead man, a man of God. Further on from Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead, people. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Well, at its most fundamental level, where does this gift of life come from? Is it our good deeds? No, not our good deeds. Eternal life springs up in people who are dead because of sin. It is not good deeds that get you there. God commands us to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and and strength, and the best any of us can muster out of all of this is some variation of half-heartedness. So where does it come from? Does it come from our faith? Is that where the gift of life comes from? From our faith. But where does this gift of faith come from? From the soul of a dead man or woman? Or is even this gift of faith a gracious gift? gift from heaven, an unasked for work of God's Holy Spirit. The passage on the screen tells us the gift of life springs from God himself. His rich mercy, it says at the start, God's great love, his saving grace, God's initiative, not yours. What a grace, what a mercy, what a What a severe presence of God in the life of people who otherwise would have been quite happy without Him. Friends, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Even when His people are half-hearted and afraid, God is always there. Let's do a little thought experiment for a moment. Let me ask you this. When the man stood to his feet in the tomb and he discovered that the Moabites were approaching. What did he do? I assume he ran alongside uh, his friends, the would-be mourners. But do you reckon he ran with the same fear in his heart that caused them to flee in the first place? He's invincible. He's just been risen from the dead. I reckon he ran with them, but do you think maybe that his friends... um, But do you you reckon he was running with the same fear? Do you reckon even his friends were running with the same single-minded fear? I reckon they probably ran faster, actually. But this time with a spring in their step. Not only did they have enemies to evade, but they had news to tell, real news to share. Do you reckon the next day when they all returned to their labours, they complained the way they did the day before? Or do you reckon they laboured with all their might as though they were serving the Lord of life himself? Do you reckon weeks later when his wife returned to nagging him and his kids to disrespecting him, do you reckon these things stuck him, uh, stung him like they did weeks before? Or do you reckon he had some new kind of built-in resilience against the arrows that can come your way? Do you reckon that next time the allure of sin came knocking on his door, he fell just as easily as he did every other time before? Or do you reckon he was more inclined to cling to the word of God since it was through God's prophet that he was raised? Do you reckon when he was overlooked for promotion or left out of his father's inheritance, do you reckon he was bitter and grumpy for months? Or do you reckon he had a special kind of underlying, unyielding joy... That gave him contentment in any and every situation. Do you reckon years later, when he lay again on his deathbed, he was just as afraid as he was the first time? Or do you reckon he lay there with hope in a God who raises the dead? You're that man. If it's true that the death of the Lord Jesus has given us real eternal life, Beginning today, do you reckon we ought to be fearful, lazy, sinful, weak, grumpy, quick to give up? Or do you reckon there should just be a little bit of something more inside? There is a small danger in the message today. One small danger that God's constant grace and his presence may become for us an excuse for further half-heartedness? You know, why cultivate faithfulness if God is always faithful anyway? Well, I'll say two things against that and I really think it's only a small danger. I think it's only a small danger because first thing, that is rarely how encouragement works. Rarely. If you hand someone a rope and harness, does that make them a worse abseiler? No, it empowers them for an otherwise impossible task. If you hand someone the eternal truth of God's presence, his love, his constant unchanging mercy and compassion, do you reckon that makes someone lazier? It empowers faith and courage. We don't need to be afraid Of encouragement. Encouragement empowers the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is an empowering message. It's not one that produces laziness or at least it shouldn't and if it does you didn't understand it. But the second thing is, uh, the second reason uh, that they're against this small danger that uh, you know this truth of God's constancy uh, might make us lazy, the second thing to note uh, is that there is a reminder within the passage itself. Uh, Joash's half-heartedness with the arrows is a written warning against a limp faith. So hear the encouragement, but let's also hear the warning. When God hands you the arrow of victory, you keep firing that arrow and you never stop. You strike sin again and again and again. Five or six times at least. Don't stop at three. Every time sin rears its head, God has promised you victory. Pierce it again. Picture his hands on yours, lending you his strength. Fight with all your might. He has handed you the victory. It might take more times than you would like, but fight and do not give up. When repeated sin or even addiction resurfaces, fire again. When relationships wear you down, use the weapons God has given you. What are the weapons God has given you in relationships? Repent, forgive, repent, forgive, repent, forgive. Five or six times at least. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Has Bible reading and prayer fallen by the wayside? Then open your Bible this afternoon, even if you don't feel like it. And start your week tomorrow morning with the Word of God. If your imagination fails you in prayer, say the Lord's Prayer. I challenge you to improve on it. Use the tools that God has given you to strike again and again. God is gracious and compassionate. Even though we are half-hearted and often afraid, he is always present. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, it is not difficult for us to see half-heartedness and fear in this passage certainly not hard for us to see it in our own lives uh, in our own past and quite likely in our own presence present god we uh, repent today we are sorry we decide again uh, to follow you to pursue you with all our heart to obey you with all our strength and particularly to call on the strength that you provide pray that you will help us to be resilient to persevere in faith and obedience and love, even when all of these things can sometimes grow stale and often get tough. Father, we thank you that you are always there. We thank you for this reminder that you gave to the people of Israel when they were feeling lost so long ago. Uh, we thank you uh, that you have preserved your word so that we can be reminded again today uh, of your faithfulness, of your surprising abundant generosity we thank you for even the gift of faith we pray for those uh, who may be here uh, or for those that we know who do not know that gift of faith we pray that by your spirit you will do the work uh, that we've neglected to ask for that you will uh, raise the dead that you will breathe new life father may we uh, be faithful may we go in peace Uh, serving you with the strength that you provide. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.